I mean, I gave a, a full-length speech about love your enemies and about how you know we can love our enemies, which is not to say like our enemies, but to love our enemies is to commit to reconciliation as a plan of life, notwithstanding our feelings, and that we can do this. Hi, I'm Jim Daly, and that's my friend Arthur Brooks talking about some of the things in life that matter most, like loving others, uh, which leads to a happier, more fulfilled life. Thanks for joining me for Refocus with Jim Daly. Today, I'm going to share a fun and meaningful discussion I had with Arthur Brooks in Manhattan at the Harvard Club with uh, some of the Focus friends there. It was a great time unpacking how to live well in the second half of life, developing relationships, getting along with others, how about that one, and finding meaning and purpose in all you do. Here on the new podcast, I have that opportunity to go deeper in discussions and sometimes get into some edgier and relevant topics that I can't do on the Focus broadcast. I'm really impressed with Arthur Brooks and the ideas that he shares. He's a professor at Harvard, a researcher, an economist and author who loves to speak all over the world about happiness. It's a great theme. And we share some common ideas that reference the importance of family and connecting to God. And for me, that's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and living out the biblical mandate to love your neighbor as yourself. Arthur has tapped into some valuable life lessons in his book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. I can't wait to get started. So here's that fascinating conversation with Arthur Brooks on Refocus with Jim Daly. Um, okay, so you're teaching at Harvard up in Boston. You've made the trek down to New York to be with us. Yeah, Thank delighted, you for that. Delighted to do it. And we're here at the Harvard Club, which feels like you know, the, the home away from home. For, <laughs> Thus uh, the suit and ties, right? Exactly. But uh, it is good. Tell me just generally about the atmosphere at Harvard. I mean, the Christian community, we get such a caricature of what goes on at Harvard. It scares everybody. Yeah. What's happening? Well, there's a tendency for both sides politically in America today to try to fire up their troops by saying that the other side is a bunch of ogres, terrible. Um, That's actually happening. Yeah, well, (laughs) you've noticed that. I noticed that. (laughs) And, you know, we have a culture of fear, which is a problem, especially for us as Christians who are trying to build a culture of love, and perfect love drives out fear, so we're doing our best with love. And the truth of the matter is that there, there are things that we should be concerned about all over this country, but there's a lot more to be optimistic about, and there's a lot for us to love. There's so many opportunities for us to do so. Now, coming back to your question, you know, universities are they're in crisis in a lot of ways. Uh, they're, they're supposed to be marketplaces of ideas. They're supposed to be the competition of ideas, and in so many places, they're... They're, they're riven by cancel culture, to be sure, and you know, ideas that are antithetical to the concept that we're interchanging these intellectual positions in a, in a, in a spirit of openness. That said, I've never had any discomfort at Harvard University. On the contrary, I mean, they've, they've welcomed me with open arms. Um, now, I mean, they know I'm probably not the most typical, ideologically typical person there, but my classes are oversubscribed. My students are smart and interesting. Uh, we have vigorous conversations. I don't teach politics. I mean, I teach the science of happiness. Right. I mean, who doesn't want that? But the truth is, I don't feel like a pariah. I don't feel like an outcast at all. But I do feel like somebody who has a ton of opportunity. You know, and, and I have missionaries on both sides of my family. And, um, you know, missionaries are incredible because they face all of this rejection 
uh, repudiation all the time, but they're always filled with joy because they can bring something that people don't have. They can bring light where there's darkness, truth where there's, where there's you know, falsehoods. And, and you know, to be a, a Christian man on, on a college campus that's not just secular, it's, it's kind of ultra-secular, is a huge opportunity for me, not necessarily to convert everybody, but for people to see the joy in my life. You know, this is the key. I mean, our, our, our apostolic mission is for people to, to say that's a person who's happy. That's a person who does excellent work. What's the secret? And, and attract people in that particular way. What a, an opportunity it is to be literally at the world's greatest university bringing something that I think is incredibly important to, to a lot of people who yeah. don't necessarily have it. In that regard, it needs to be authentic, right? You can, I guess, project mm -hmm. happiness, but it's not really in the core. I'll save that question. I want to ask you first, the last time we were together was yeah. at the National Prayer Breakfast. Yes, indeed. And, uh, two weeks before the coronavirus <laughs> epidemic sent yeah, us all Yeah, two home. weeks. You're exactly right. Uh -huh. So there are 5,000 people there. I think it was uh, an acquittal of Trump. or I remember he pulled out the newspapers as he came onto stage. Uh, not guilty, I think, was yeah, one big Senate headline. Yeah, impeachment acquittal had happened the night before. Right, and before so he came out on stage, Nancy Pelosi's on stage, and you had the great challenge of speaking about your book, uh, Love Your Enemies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was quite <laughs> a... Why don't you just... Uh, you and I had a great half-hour chat after the speech because uh, it was so bizarre. It was an assignment that I was not <laughs> expecting. It was uh, I was sitting on the dais between... Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence and on the other side of the of the podium was President Trump and the National Prayer Breakfast has been going on for years and years and years what happens is you have a, a, a keynote speaker and right after that the President of the United States speaks so I knew that President Trump was going to be following me um, up at the podium so I'm speaking in front of this podium that says President of the United States which I thought you know for me was kind of a good look um, <clears throat> not that I'm ambitious and so I thought to myself, what can I actually say that in this period in American history might do some good? Because this is the opportunity. Look, when you got the mic, say something that matters. You know, don't say, all you people, you're all right, and everybody who disagrees is stupid and evil. I mean, it's like, come on. Say something that's actually challenging. So I thought, you know, I had this, I harbored a pretension that day. I'm going to talk about loving your enemies. I was going to, is it the <laughs> National Prayer Breakfast, right? Because it's 5,000 mostly Christian, serious Christian people. I'm going to talk about Matthew 5, 44. And, and I'm thinking, you know, you know what's going to happen? I was thinking about it the night before, praying about it the night before. President Trump is going to be like, yeah, let's just bury the hatchet for a minute. He's going to cross behind me. He's going to walk over to Nancy Pelosi. And then we're going to shake hands. We're going to do this moment of minor reconciliation. No, 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 no. That's not what happened. <laughs> That's not what happened. No, no. And this is the best part. Yeah, yeah. So I talked to, you know, I, I, I mean, I gave a, a full-length speech about love your enemies and about how, you know, we can love our enemies, which is not to say like our enemies, but to love our enemies is to commit to reconciliation as a plan of life, notwithstanding our feelings, and that we can do this, and how much better it would be. And anyway, as a social scientist, I gave this, this speech. Very good, actually. Thanks. I appreciate yeah, that. No, no thank you, Jim. I appreciate that a lot. And, and afterward, you know, President Trump got up and he said, you know, I, I like listening to Arthur give a speech, but I got to say, I, I disagree with love your enemies. And I, and I thought to myself. <laughs> and he looked right at Nancy I know. Pelosi. <laughs> I know. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, talk about a gutsy move. I mean, he wasn't disagreeing with me at the National Prayer Breakfast. He was disagreeing with Jesus at the National Prayer Breakfast. <laughs> that, my friends, is a truly gutsy move. <laughs> yes. yes. And, uh, well, let's get on to the bigger topic yeah. today. Um, so you're a sociologist. That's economist, your... actually. I'm, oh, I'm economist. trained as an economist. Yeah. All right, good. Yeah, yeah. And you've uh, hit this thing about 
the happiness index. Yeah. And you've kind of decided there's two kinds of people in the world, especially the halftime people, most of the people in this room, not everybody, but you're getting close. And uh, you've come down to the conclusion there's unhappy people and happy people. Yeah. Is that basically it? Well, basically, there's happier and unhappier is what it comes down to. There's nobody who's truly happy. Nobody's pinning out on a 10 on the happiness scale. And, and nobody's really a zero. But what we're all on is a journey toward greater uh, happiness or, or, unfortunately, on a journey of greater unhappiness. And this is what I actually study as a scientist. So I've dedicated my work as a social scientist to the, to the work on the, both the neuroscience and social science of, of happiness. And that's now what I teach at Harvard University. And what I've found in my work is that there's a funny, almost predictable pattern about happiness as we get older. On the first day of class for my MBA students, I say, you know, they're on average about 28 years old. And I say, imagine yourself in 10 years. Are you going to be happier or unhappier, age 38? All the hands happier. I mean, they're optimists. You wouldn't be going into that much debt if you weren't an optimist. <laughs> and, um, and then I say, okay, how about 10 years later, you're 48. And they think about it and think, yeah, probably a little bit happier. And the reason is because all these good things are going to happen. And it's going to happen for my students and for most people. You're basically going to get your dreams. The problem is if you have the wrong dreams, is what I'm going to teach them over the course of the semester. And then I say, what about 78? And they're like, oh, I don't want that. And I say, why not? And they can't tell me why they don't want to be 78. It just doesn't sound like fun to be old. Okay. So I say, what you're saying is that you're going to get happier and happier and happier. You're going to max out, then you're going to start back down again. They're like, mm, I guess that's right. Okay. Let's look at the data. I look at data on 500,000 people. And it turns out any place in the world is the same pattern. On average, you will slightly decline in your day-to-day -day happiness from early 20s all the way through to your early 50s. Then most people, and, and the reason for that has very much to do with you know, family dynamics and tensions. Teenage kids, really what it comes You're down right, to. Exactly. And then in your early 50s, it, it inflects, and almost everybody gets happier from the early 50s till about age 70. And then a weird thing happens. The population breaks up into two groups. One that keeps going up all the way to death, and the other that starts back down all the way till death. So I'm going to take a in wild... In the unhappiness. In the unhappiness direction. direction. So I'm going to take a wild guess, Jim, that you want to be on the upper branch. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's what my most recent research talks about, is how to get on the upper branch and not try to leave it up to chance. And in there, you talk about purpose and how purpose plays a role in that. Yes. And, you know, purpose is incredible, incredibly important because purpose or meaning is one of the three macronutrients of happiness. My students come into my class, they can't necessarily define happiness. They just kind of know what it feels like. But that's totally insufficient to living a life. That's like saying uh, Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. It, it doesn't even make any sense. It's evidence that there's a Thanksgiving dinner. And your feelings are evidence of actual happiness. You need to approach it as a scientific matter such that you can study it, uh, practice it, share it, work on it like you would any other serious thing in your life. And, and to do that, you need to break it up into three big macronutrients. So yeah, just, as, just as food is protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Happiness is enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. That's really what it comes down to. And each of those has a huge literature, scientific literature. Enjoyment is enormously complicated in, in, you know, quantitatively. But conceptually, it's not. Enjoyment takes pleasure 
and it, and it turns it into a human experience. How? By moving the expression of pleasure from the, the auto, automatic parts of the brain, the limbic system of the brain, to the prefrontal cortex of the brain where we can remember it and we can have an experience with other people. That's what enjoyment is all about. You know, when, you're, when, you have, when you really enjoy Thanksgiving, it's not just filling your belly and it tasting good. It's having a great dinner with the people that you love and that you remember for the rest of your life. That's enjoyment. Right. Satisfaction is a reward for you, you strove, you worked, and you got something you were working for. Now, for a lot of people, real satisfaction comes just getting through the week and getting to the weekend. But for really high achievers, strivers, you, which really has to do with a lot more than that. And the, and the, the problem is that if you become an, a success addict, a striver who has to hit it and hit it and always, always work and always win, then it, you become more or less like a methamphetamine addict because satisfaction gets harder and harder to get and you actually have to hit the lever more and more and more and then you can never stop. You know, and we're gonna get into this in yeah. a much deeper way, but, but you had a, I think, an, situation on an airplane that yeah. you were on and you saw a hero of yours. Right. I'm sure many of us might know that person. You don't name them in the book. Right. Because, you know, that would yeah, be inappropriate, it's, of course. It's very good. But uh, describe what happened because I well, think it hits the last part is this. meaning. The, right. the meaning part of life is really, you know, the why am I alive? For what would I be willing to die? Which requires a whole lot of suffering. So that's the last macronutrient. Okay. Okay. Now, all together you get happiness. And, and I'm very interested in the research of people who are on the upper branch and the people who are on the lower branch. And I always thought, I mean, we all think that if you're a big success in life, that you're going to get on the upper branch automatically. People think if I'm successful, that will lead to happiness. That's completely wrong. It turns out that, you know, you're, it's, you know going from success to happiness is like pushing on a string. The two are not related. On the contrary, trying to be more and more successful in worldly terms will often take you away from the sources of actual happiness. And I've seen this again and again in, in lots and lots of, of historical biographies. But I actually saw this myself in, a, in a, a scene that you're referring to, Jim, where I was on a plane, and this has actually kicked off this particular research. I mean, my lab as a social scientist is the overheard conversation. You know, when, you know that's when, I, you know, throw, if any of you are confessing that somebody broke your heart to somebody, you know, and you're behind me in a line at the Starbucks. You were taking notes in this group yeah, a moment I like, ago. I said, keep your voice down because I'm a, <laughs> I, I, might, I might write a book about it. So, um, I heard a couple talking behind me on a plane some years ago, and the husband, I couldn't quite make out his words, but I could hear his wife, I was assuming it was his wife, man or woman, I could tell by their voices, they were elderly, and she had a very piercing voice, and she, he, he mumbles a little bit, and she says, oh, don't say it would be better if you were dead. I'm like, whoa, you know, it's like social scientist, perks up his ears, you know, gets at his clipboard. <laughs> and then he mumbles and she says, it's not true that nobody remembers you or cares about you anymore. And it went on like this for half an hour, and mm -hmm. at the end of the flight, you know, I'm kind of curious because I had this picture of a guy who's, you know, not like you. I mean, he didn't actually live up to his potential and he's very disappointed now near the end of his life. He didn't get the education he wanted, start the business he wanted. In the, at the end, we stand up and the lights turn on just to get a look. And it's one of the most famous, successful men in the world. Somebody that we all know for a hero, an actual hero, not a politician or an actor or something. You know, this is somebody who did great things that we all know about. And we all, every single one of us admires this person. And I, I had a window onto his soul and I thought, okay, is he an outlier? Hmm. Or is there some correlation behind the success addicted, super successful workaholic and the inability later in life to achieve happiness? And I started a body of research that shows that that guy's actually typical. 
it's amazing. And, you know, we're walking out of the plane and he's right behind me and my mind is being blown by what I just heard. And the, the pilot stops him and says, he recognizes him and says, sir, you've been my hero since I was a little boy. And I turned around and he was beaming with pride. And I thought, so which is it, this one or the one half an hour ago? And I thought then very selfishly, I know which one I want to be. And then when I did the research, I found that in point of fact, one of the best predictors of being disappointed at the end of your life is very early success and an addiction to that success. Hmm. And that's what my research has really been about and what this book really is about. Well, I mean, I would think that finding it hard to maintain that kind of satisfaction or success is the problem. Um, how, how do you, if you're leaning toward that negativity like this right. man was a half hour earlier, and then your comment lifted his spirits the way it did. Mm -hmm. how, how can you live in a better zone without having Arthur Brooks say, you're my hero? Well, there was the pilot who said that, and that, which is much better. You know, the, the guy, you know, the United Airlines pilot is a lot better than Arthur Brooks saying that to this guy. And because, and, uh, you know, he was the big cheese on the plane at that particular time. Here's the <laughs> deal. When, when you look at the data on high achievers, you find that if you're identified as a high achiever before 20, you're more likely after 80 to be disappointed with your life. And the reason is because you see yourself as number one and you chase number one, and not very many people can be number one. And so that's very disappointing. You're a self-objectifier under those circumstances. Usually that starts with your parents, by the way. You know, you're so good, you're so smart, you're so hardworking, <laughs> and then you see yourself as such try to live up to it. The second is if you have a lot of success, that's a huge party, and every party's gotta end. And look, if you don't do anything with your life, you won't know when it's over. But if you do a lot, man, you're going to come down off that high and it's going to really, really, really hurt. And that's what's really happening under those circumstances. So here's the deal. You know, ordinary people tend to have more happiness than people who are completely committed to being extraordinary in worldly ways. I admire people who do extraordinary things, but I have to recognize as a social scientist that the happiness is not gonna come automatically. The world says, St. Thomas Aquinas said this, that there's four substitutes for God, Aquinas said. But he was a very good social scientist too, because even for secular people, they'll recognize this. What they are are the, the little divinities that we seek, money, power, pleasure, and fame. Mm. And those are the things, these are the idols that people are actually seeking in life. And if you seek those idols your whole life, you're going to get them. I mean, you're mostly going to get them. You're going to get a good deal of them, but it's not going to satisfy any more than the golden calf satisfies. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. And, and here's the deal. Why don't you ever figure that out? You think, come on, you know, we should have figured this out since the Pleistocene, that this isn't going to work. But here's the deal. Your choice is to be, to act like you're actually made in God's image or to act in your animal impulses. But we have a choice as people made in God's image to not do that, but it doesn't come naturally. Mm. That's the most important thing. And if you do the wrong thing, man, you're gonna be the king of the mambo and probably end badly. And be sad. Yeah. You mentioned the patterns of unhappiness and you've touched on the first one, which is that pursuit that never fulfills, right. I believe. That's, and the second one you talk about is more of the fill up the canvas, Right. describe that metaphor. Well, the book is really about that odd situation in which people are very successful and happy because they manage their happiness the way they manage their careers as a serious pursuit to understand, to practice, and to share with other people. That's the key. That's what I teach. 
Okay, so what are the, the practices of that? You know, one is actually, the, the most important thing in the book that I talk about is, is making sure that you're, you're playing to your own strengths and your strengths change over the course of your life. Another is what you just referred to, which is that all old, happy, successful people have one thing in common. They've long since stopped adding to their lives and started subtracting from their lives to find the essence of their true selves. Now, this that is sounds a little, uh, you know, Buddhist. odd. Right, well, okay. No, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I've been hanging out with the Dalai Lama, which, by the way, who really inspired a lot of this for me. You know, one of the people who's made me, I believe, a much better Christian is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Every <laughs> okay. time I've been working with him quite closely for the past 10 years, and, and every time I see him, he tells me he wants me to be a better Christian. Hmm. Isn't that something? Yeah. Um, I don't tell him I want him to be a better Buddhist. I actually ask him if he wants to join me in the Christian faith. But that's, in, and that's, a, that's a difference of culture, I think. But one of the things that he teaches, but, but that our Christian faith teaches as well, is that the essence of you doesn't come from larding up your life with more worldly possessions and outer stuff. On the contrary, it's actually looking within. The contemplative life is the good life, and you need to learn how to do that more. And there's just a lot of evidence in the scientific world that tells us that, experiments and neuroscientific research, et cetera. So as I, I say this actually more as a scientist than I, even that I do as a Christian man, that the, if you can learn to think not of your life as a canvas to fill up, but in the second part of your life as a, as a chunk of marble to chip away until you can find you inside, then you can actually find happiness unencumbered by the detritus of all the stuff around you. It's really extraordinary when you talk to people who are 75 years old and they're like, I don't know, I, I guess I'll get a boat. I mean, th this is it's this weird exercise in futility of continuing <laughs> to chase the lure and chase the lure. I mean, like the new car smell will last forever. Like if I move to California and get the good weather, that that's going to permanently make me happy, which... I got the data. It'll improve your mood for six months, and then the taxes are forever. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just, you know, the truth is none of it works. We call it in my business the hedonic treadmill. Hedonic means feelings. The treadmill is obviously a metaphor. You run, 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 but you reset emotionally again and again and again. You can't find satisfaction from adding. You can't find satisfaction from having more. You can only find it from wanting less of these worldly things. You need to satisfy yourself with the things that are, that are not from the money, power, and pleasure, and fame. You need to satisfy yourself from the, the virtuous portfolio of happiness, the true 401k of happiness, which is fourfold as well. And what do those, you know, those things look like for that person that's becoming more and more sour that's hearing this right now? And they're saying, okay, I've never thought of it this way. It's, you need to migrate from those old idols to the things that really matter. And those things are actually pretty simple. I mean, there's 10,000 papers on the happiest people's habits. But, you know, you boil that ocean, it comes down to just four. That's faith, family, friendship, and work that serves others. That's it, man. That's your happiness portfolio. And you got to put in, if you put a, a deposit in each one of those accounts every day, It'll change your life. Yeah. And it will migrate you away from these things. So why is it so contrary things? to what we think is going to make us happy? So the pursuit. Yeah. I mean, we're in New York City. We're in a room full of successful people. Yeah. And we're going after it. And I did my MBA yeah. and that whole thing. Yeah. But yeah. Me too. why are we not seeing these things more clearly? Are they that hidden from our hearts? Well, again, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of... Of, of intersecting reasons why this is hard, why this is not natural. To begin with, 
the evolution of the human species does not lend itself to enlightenment, peace, and happiness. It lends itself to survival and the propagation of the species. Happiness is not an imperative in human evolution. It just isn't. That's number one. Number two is that society is like a, a vast distributed digital version of the limbic system of our brains. Our brains are made to say money, power, pleasure, fame, money, power, pleasure, fame. Mm. And, 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 and the whole culture, of course, propagates that. The whole culture expands on that. And this reminds us of this incredible opportunity that we have to manage our lives like this sanctified enterprise that it really is. You know, if you did the easiest thing for you and your business, I mean, many of the people here are very successful in business. The, most, the easiest thing in your business would be to just loaf, just to slack. And you don't do that. You go against your animal instincts and you become successful. <clears throat> well, the same thing is true with your own happiness. Treat it like a successful enterprise and you will go against many of your animal instincts. In the 60s, you know, I, I don't remember the 60s very well, but I do remember that Woodstock was going on and I was five years old and I was watching our, you know, Zenith black and white TV in our house in Seattle. <laughs> you had to actually get up and change. I yeah, was totally. very unhappy about that. Yeah, I told you. We didn't know it was bad until, <laughs> until, until we actually got the, the station. Yeah, so, and I was watching with my dad, just, you know, I'd do anything, hang out with my dad. And Walter Cronkite or somebody was, was, was interviewing a hippie, you know, from, from Woodstock. And, and the interviewer, the journalist said, so what are you up to? I mean, what's the purpose of all this? And the hippie said very famously, if it feels good, do it. And my dad said, that's the end of America. <laughs> <laughs> and was he right? Well, I don't know. It's, a, it's up for debate. It's like, it's too soon to tell, as, you know, as Chinese historians like to say, um, about everything, you know, including the French Revolution, apparently. I mean, because this, the passage of time takes a really long sweep. But... Um, the one thing that we do know is it's incredibly bad life advice. If it feels good, do it is incredibly bad life advice. And we actually know that as, as people that have the moral chip as well, that have the faith chip as well. You know, it's funny. You know, people are, we're made to worship. This is a, a very, that's, that's not a religious point. That's a social scientific point that people are made to worship. And, and you can worship yourself or you can worship something outside yourself. You can worship the physical or you can worship the metaphysical is the whole point. And that particular choice will get us on a different trajectory from if it feels good, do it, to build your life <laughs> with the same seriousness that you would build your career. And you know, that's what I'm dedicating the rest of my life to doing is to, building, to bringing people, whether they're, they share my religion, whether they share my views or not, to, to take their life like a serious enterprise. Because man, if you leave it up to chance, if you're just really lucky, you'll be the man on the plane. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, and that's yeah. what's so good about Successful people hearing miserable. what you've been measuring. You have a, a story in the book, a woman that worked here in Wall Street mm. who kind of uh, was moving in a not a good direction. Right. And she talked with you about things. What, yeah. what was the the net net of her life expression. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I talked to a lot of people for the book, a lot of very, very successful people for the book because this really is work for strivers. And that doesn't mean they're rich, it just means they're trying to do a lot with their lives. And you know, since I've written the book, I've gotten thousands of emails and letters from, from people who are in all walks of life who say, it's true, I'm not happy. I don't understand why, you know. Um, this is somebody who was very, very successful in worldly terms. She made hundreds of millions or perhaps billions of dollars as a, as a company founder of a finance firm on Wall Street. 
a pretty legendary figure. And she was telling, she's about my age, I'm 58, she's about my age. And she said, yeah, I'm lost. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I just, I'm still running my firm, but my, my decisions don't have a crispness to them anymore. The younger people, the young killers, they kind of doubt my decisions. And she said, you know, my young relationships. Killers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you hire young killers. And it's like, I'm looking at some of, some of you, maybe some of you work for her here. Um, she says that my relationships are fallow. She says my, my husband and I were kind of roommates. I have a cordial relationship with my adult children. I don't have any real friends. I just have a lot of deal friends. <laughs> and she said, you know, I, I, I'm starting to get bad reports from my doctor. I got to say, I, I haven't been in the gym in a long time. I drink too much. She told me all this, and, I, and I, she said, mm. what do I do? I said, you don't need a nerd from Harvard to tell you what to do. You need to step back from your firm and take a souvenir in it. Maybe a board seat, maybe not. You need to go away with your husband. You need to get to know your children. You need to, I don't get into AA. You need to develop your spiritual life. You need to know yourself. Why don't you, she said, I know, I know, I know. I said, why don't you do that? She thought about it for a minute. She said, I guess I'd prefer to be special than happy. I said, boom, boom, man. I mean, it was, it really affected me. And the reason it affected me is not because it was a moment of lucidity into her life, but because it was a window into my life. I mean, I've busted my pick for a long time to do special things. I care about it. You know, I, and when I was doing this work, I was the CEO of a big think tank in Washington, D.C., and I had worked very hard to get into that position. I'd worked very hard to succeed in that position. And I had been working 80 or 85-hour weeks for a long time. And I'm telling you, there were many nights when I chose the 14th hour of work before the first hour with my kids. I didn't see, I mean, my wife raised my kids. I was the dad. Like, when did dad grow a beard? <clears throat> you know, I was doing 175 speeches. I was raising $50 million a year, which I realized is like, you know, for, for Jim Daly, it's like, yeah, good start, Sonny. No, but, no, uh, right, I mean, that's you know, um, excellent pace. But, you know, it was grinding work, and I was a success addict. And I preferred to be special than happy a lot of times. And that lady said that to me, and I said, oh, man, oh, man. I mean, I'm just looking in the mirror at this point. And I've tried to repudiate that, and I've tried to correct that. But I recognize that I live in the world, too. You know, even I'm a, I'm a happiness specialist, and I fall prey to these things. These are addictions, and these are the, the ways of the world. You know, let me, let me take that down a bit when you look at... Um screen time and teenagers and 20-somethings, mm. which, of course, many of your students are 20-somethings, and you think of the culture that they're being raised in, it's mostly about feeling special. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, specialness is, a, is just a human imperative. We all want to feel special, and, and specialness leads to all kinds of, you know, good things. I mean, it leads us to, to want to distinguish ourselves. It leads us to want to pursue excellence. The problem is that it also leads to social comparison which is the thief of joy. It leads us to envy, which is the only one of the deadly sins that isn't even fun. It leads us, it has, look, it's so bad it has two commandments against it, right? Nobody says, you know, I'm telling you, it's all the sin, it's just so great, especially the coveting. I mean, it's just nobody's ever uttered these words before, right? <laughs> it just wrecks your life to be mm. in search of all these ways where you resent people who have the things that you don't, who have these characteristics that you can't attain. On the other hand, it's a normal thing to want to stand out in a particular way. And, and so that means that, that knowledge of yourself, recognizing these tendencies, managing these things, not sort of automatically. I mean, the key thing with all of these impulses and drives and emotions, all the things that I talk about, is you can let them manage you or you can manage them. 
Yeah. And this is the good news of this message. The good news of the science of happiness is you can be happier by managing yourself. But you got to take, you have knowledge, you got to practice and be committed to it, and you got to share it with other people. Then you, then you can have dramatically more control. I mean, since I started doing this work, I mean, I measure my happiness regularly in the macronutrients of enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose, and 19 micronutrients that I, I've, I have a spreadsheet that I update monthly. I kid you not. I realize that's weird, but look, I mean, it's like, I'm a nerd. Are you happy I, doing that? It, it, <laughs> it helps me because this knowledge is power. I am 60% happier than I was. Wow. When, I, when I started on this journey. That's amazing. That's all in the book. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of it's in the book. And the next book that I have is actually for 25-year-olds drivers. I'm writing a book right now that's coming out the year after next. Um, that is the book that I wish had been written for me when I was 25. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm yeah, looking yeah. forward to that. Uh, the big three. I feel yeah. like Yoda or something like that. You know? <laughs> well, you don't look like Yoda. Yeah, no. Not yet. Yeah, yeah not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but you talk about happiness is your responsibility. Yeah. Lasting happiness comes from habits, not hacks. Yeah. So we can explain yeah. that a little bit. And then happiness is love. Yeah. Which is what the Lord said, yeah, basically. Totally. I know, I know. It's so amazing. It's uh, it's so great to be a Christian social scientist because you're basically, you get all the questions from the Bible and then you can actually expose them to empirical scrutiny. And it turns out that Jesus is right over and over again, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it's very reassuring for a Christian man, I will yeah, tell you. I was going to say. But the whole point to begin with is that you know, I have, these, I have these very interesting data that talk about people who wish they were happier. I mean, everybody wishes they were happier, but the more you say, I wish I were happier, the unhappier you get because you're focusing on your unhappiness. But the people who work for it get happier. If you do the work, you'll get the payoff. Work, don't wish. And there's very good studies that show this, that when you actually learn about the science of happiness, and, and there's lots of ways to learn the science of happiness. You can take my class, or you can actually do your own reading, or you can sit at the knee of your grandmother and carefully record everything that she says. Because it comes down to a lot of the same material, I will tell you. Do the work. Then practice it by, by adopting these things into habits in your life assiduously, and then share them with other people. I mean, that's the algorithm for learning mathematics, too, by the way. If you actually want to learn math, learn it practice it, share it, and it will become yours. This is the reason that managers of ideas actually become the masters of those particular mm. ideas. The second thing that you said is habits, not hacks. We're in a hack culture. I'm going to hack this. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, cyber hacking, biohacking, wealth hacking, and there's happiness hacking. You do this one thing, do this one weird thing and you're going to be happy. It's nonsense. No, no, I can lift your mood for six minutes with a hack. But you don't want that. I mean, I, I want my life to be better, and I want other people's lives to be better, and that's living in a different way. You know, the whole idea of, it, I mean, again, the parable of the seed, and it is, is really applicable here. I mean, you can throw the seed into the shallow soil, and it will sprout, and then the sun comes out, and it, that's hacks. That's just all about, it's just Jesus talking about hacks. W what do we need? We need it to take root. That's habits. Mm. And that's living in a new way to be new people. No, how do you do that? Well, I mean, this gets back to the habits of the happiest people, which is faith and family and friendship and work that serves other people. And that gets to the last thing that you said, which is happiness is love, which is, you know, the words of our master say this again and again and again, that, that happiness is love or that life is love, that God is love. It's all love. Family life, which is the ties that bind that don't break and you didn't choose. And God knows you wouldn't choose in so many cases. You know, Aunt Marge, who can't stop talking about President Trump or whatever at yeah, Thanksgiving. Right. And it drives you crazy. And whether she loves him or hates him. 
friendship, real friends, not deal friends, as I mentioned a minute ago, and then work, work, you know, the sanctification of our ordinary apostolic work, which lifts up other people, which lightens their burdens. For, you know, some of you who, the teacher in Dayton who can actually retire in comfort and security because what you are doing to earn your daily bread. You know what that is? It's love of the Lord, love of your family, love of your friends. And by the way, the intersection of all of your family, love of your friends, is the companionate love that you come home to every night, which is your spouse. And then love of others, even though you've never even met through your work. Love, 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 and love, and love. Let me ask you in that regard, because just this past week I had an amazing experience. I went to um, someone I know's 80th birthday party. Nice. He, the, the six adult children, yeah. all in their 50s and 60s, uh, gave the party. Mm. And they talked about what a great man of integrity their father is. Yeah. Everything they learned about honesty they learned from yeah. dad and mom. But really, it was, it was amazing. And yeah. so the point I'm making is you can be in a good family and it's easy to love your family. It's yeah. easy to intersect. Yeah. I know another friend the same week, just this past week, who said he went to his son's wedding 10 years ago and has not heard from him again. And he has a grandchild he's never met. And there's, there's pain in that for family. Sure. And so those, to me, are two extremes. Yeah, for sure. But we all live somewhere in that continuum with yeah. our adult children, perhaps, mm-hmm. or our teenagers, yeah. or our own parents, whatever it might be. Yeah. So describe that kind of complication that yeah. comes with family and learning love and yeah. maybe, sadly, even learning hate. Yeah. The problem that a lot of people have is this, this misunderstanding of love that it's a feeling. So what, I can't love that person. I don't feel love. Love anyway. I mean, look, the Lord is very clear on this. The Lord is very clear on this. You know, Jesus doesn't say to like your enemies. You know, doesn't say like your enemies. Because Jesus is not a sentimentalist. Jesus is a realist. And what he's teaching us and what all of the subsequent philosophy, social psychology, now neuroscience reinforces is that love is a decision. Love is a commitment. Sometimes it's hard, but we can do it. You decide to love or you decide not to love. Now, what is the effect of that? That's what St. John the Apostle says in, in, in his first letter, which is the perfect love drives out fear. Unfortunately, perfect fear also drives out love. We make these decisions in our lives of what we're actually going to do. So we take love not as a feeling, but as a decision. And then what is the loving act that we can have toward the people that are just not lovable? Yeah. What do we do? And the answer is we love them anyway. That's what we're commanded to do. But that's the opportunity that we have. And it's so liberating. I mean, it's just learning this. It, Dr. Martin Luther King, he talked, he prayed this. I mean, he, he preached this sermon in uh, November of 1957 at the Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama on Matthew 5:44 on love your enemies. And he talked about the fact that it's the most practical teaching because you can decide to do it, and that's the only thing that will redeem them. That's the only chance that you have to persuade them. Because nobody in history has ever been hated into agreement. <laughs> this is a very important point for us as Christians to remember, right? Yeah. I mean, when, you know, about you know, this like, acting in terms of hostility and contempt and hatred for the people who disagree with us and, and who are contrary to our particular views. If your goal is to make sure that they never are persuaded by you, good job. You know, hatred is really, really good for making sure that we, we lock down our side and never bring anybody else into our set of beliefs. Never bring anybody else into the kingdom. Good job. But if you want a chance at sharing the love that's in your heart and the joy that's in your soul, you better decide to love. That's what 
Jesus is teaching us. But that's exactly what's reinforced by the science. That's it's available amazing. to all of us. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, I've shared that with audiences that I've spoken to. I've, I've exactly that saying, who came into the kingdom of God because you looked around and said, these Christians hate me yeah. so much that I decided to become one of them. Yeah, remember what? <laughs> I mean, it's I know. never it's like, a testimony. It's like, it's amazing. I, it's true. I am a moron. You know, it's a, you know, but, but Tertullian let, talked about that. Look at how they love one another. It was the first, second, third century. That, that's how the this church was grew. The, look, this is the light, even but when let, you're persecuted. But let me ask you, this is really good because it's on the current day situation. How do we not lean into our flesh as Christians and want to fight and want to be angry, whether it's the political situation or public schools or these Harvard universities? Mm-hmm. And we just gin up our fleshly emotion. Somebody said to me, you can't use carnal tools to fight carnal people and expect a spiritual yeah, result. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. And, totally. and again, look, we're missionaries. We are. We're missionaries on earth. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're on Wall Street or you're running Focus on the Family or you're a professor at Harvard University, this is mission territory. How are you going to be a missionary? Look, I am not going to get one single soul by shoving a crucifix in their face and say, repent, terrible, stinking sinner. It's just not going to happen under the circumstances. I have to have a love-based approach to this. And so I have to examine my own motives under the circumstances. Am I virtue signaling to people who are already in the tribe? Or am I doing what I'm commanded to do, which is actually this mission work? And that means running toward problems and embracing these mm. problems in a spirit of love. And that means getting out there, getting out into the mission field. Now, look, I mean, it, it, it's no sacrifice for me to teach at Harvard University. It truly is as great as they think it is. <laughs> it really is. It really is wonderful. What a privilege to do it. But I also recognize that, that there are some differences, as I've mentioned before, in the way that I see the world and, and, the, and the typical way that, that people would see the world. But it's just mission territory for me. What a joy to be in mission territory. I, I, my grandfather was, a, was a, a, a mission, a Methodist missionary to the Navajo Nation. My father was born in the, the Navajo Indian Reservation in New Mexico. Later, he was the dean of students at, at Wheaton College. I'm the first person on either side of any generation of my family to become Catholic, um, which I did when I was 16, by the way, and my parents were very upset. And then, they, and then my dad explained it to my mom, Childhood rebellion. It's probably better than drugs. You know? <laughs> That's right. My mom wasn't sure. But anyway, the point yeah, is right. that the point is that, you know, I would see, you know, the joy when my grandfather would talk about what the mission field felt like. So let's get that joy. Yeah. I mean, what are you gonna scratch the itch of hatred, give in to this base impulse, and drive people away? Right. It's I, just, yeah. It's I don't like, think the Lord's happy with it. Well, my I, I guess really, is, but also we're not happy with it. Right, right. <laughs> but we feel some kind of satisfaction. Yeah, early that satisfaction. We're right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or I mean, the we're special. Back yeah. to that. <laughs> Let me ask you, you, you keep mentioning this idea of real friend and deal friend. Yeah. I think that was born out of a conversation with your son. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually... Because I think go, this is really important to yeah. go back to. Very easy in the, in the world of the strivers to have a lot of deal friends and not so many real friends. And that's one of the reasons that people who are in management... Um, Jim, I don't know, man, um, <laughs> that they tend to be lonely. Yeah. It's very, it's a, it tends to be a very, very lonely thing. Um, you get to the top with a lot of deal friends, and at the top you don't have very many real friends, particularly in your immediate workplace, for all, all kinds of very practical reasons. Right. And I know this because having been a chief executive, it was quite lonely under mm-hmm. the circumstances. And I, I was having a, 
I was out uh, on Lake Okeechobee with my son, Carlos, and uh, he was a very perceptive boy. He was 11 or 12 at the time. And, you know, my cell phone rings. I'm like, uh, we're, you know, going to, he's waiting. He's itching to fish for bass. And, uh, and, and I said, I got to take this call. And I, I take this call. And it's a, it's a guy who, you know, we're doing a deal um, with the nonprofit. He was a funder. He was a foundation executive. And we talk about our families just for a couple of minutes, niceties, then we get down to business. And afterward, he's like, who is that, Dad? And I said, it's a friend. And he said, a real friend or a deal friend? As a kid saying this. And I thought, huh. Now, he's not a student of Aristotle, but that is an Aristotelian idea because Aristotle talked about friends of transaction and the virtuous, perfect friendships that we get from our shared loves. And what Aristotle said is you need friends who are, as he put it, atelic. They don't have a telos, which is a a worldly use, a worldly purpose. We would say that atelic friends are useless friends, by which we mean not useful. So this is a key, brothers and sisters. Do you have enough useless friends? Not worthless. I have those two. Do you have... <laughs> Sorry to be one of those. Yeah, I know. Worthless, <laughs> like a worthless friend. Those are the guys I grew up with in my neighborhood in Seattle. Um, <laughs> Good for nothing. Um, but do you have enough useless people that can't be useful to you, but you simply love? Now, the shared loves that you have is what really binds you together. Maybe it's building birdhouses or the Boston Red Sox. And in a lot of cases, you know, my best friend, we can do a lot of business together, but we never get to it because we talk about our faith, the walk that we have in our religious faith. We talk about our family life. We talk about our mm -hmm. kids and grandkids. And, and it's a very beautiful thing. No, that's good. I do want to come back again to uh, the personal interactions during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, what was it like? I mean, again, being a professor and were you doing everything online? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, every, everything was online, absolutely, because the whole, you know, the whole country was basically at a distance at right. that point. I mean, there were some odd enclaves. Apparently, the coronavirus epidemic never made it to Texas, but um, weirdly, I mean, it's like, how did they not, or something, I'm not sure, but in Massachusetts, let me tell you, it was in full force, and, and me, it was me and my wife and my only child at home at the time, my little girl, uh, who was a senior in high school, you know, taking classes online, very, un, you know, unrewardingly, and, and it was tough, I have to say, it was, a, it was a stress test to relationships, even my own, but I got a lot of writing done, I got a lot of thinking done. You know, yeah. I actually got in better shape. 85% of Americans got more out of shape and ate worse, and 15% got shredded. And it was, uh, and, and it's for, so weirdly, I actually got, you know, my, my health improved. Well, you know, what well, we saw at Focus, marriages that were strong got stronger. Yeah. Marriages that had foundational cracks became weaker. Yeah. It was, the, it was the, the Divorce Lawyers Full Employment Act of 2020. Yeah. Uh, kind of, yeah. Why, why do you think that occurred? It had to do with the fact that it was a stress test for the marriage. It's, it's, so I had, I had a very close friend at one point who was complaining to me that, that his marriage was under stress because he was on the road so much for work. And, and so I started giving him some ideas. You know, maybe you could do more online. Maybe you could, you know, not take so many trips. And it, and it was always an excuse about why that wouldn't work until I realized that the problem was not that his marriage was under stress because he was on the road all the time. He was on the road all the time because he didn't like his marriage. And being at home was unpleasant. And a lot of people have found kind of a way of coexistence with their spouse and with their families of just not being together too much. And when they're shoved together in the little sort of the little gerbil cage that was the coronavirus epidemic, that was an enormous stress test. And it was, an it was a huge opportunity. I mean, I learned a lot about my marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, I learned a lot about 
which of my buttons get pushed by this, that, or the other thing. Also, you know, I'm a super extrovert, 96th percentile to be, to, according to the, you know, if you believe the personality tests that are, that are, that we use as social scientists and, you know, extroverts are like dogs, introverts are like cats. Ordinarily, this is dog world. It turned into cat world and it was not great for us dogs. I have to say, my little girl is a cat. She's like, actually, we could kind of do this for a long time. Right, daddy? That's pretty amazing. No, honey. It's, this is not great. And so it was hard. Yeah. Speaking of setbacks and difficulties, I mean, this again is one of the things in the culture that that's, that's so overlooked is the benefit yeah. of suffering. Yeah. And th- yeah. there's wide ranges of that, yeah. obviously. But, but what do we learn through difficult times? And so many people have referenced the fact that that's where your character is formed. Right. It's not the top of the mountain. It's at the valley, right. et cetera. So speak to that issue that joy and happiness can be found through difficulty. So the last macronutrient of happiness is meaning. And the problem with meaning is it requires suffering. You don't, it's exactly the point that you just made. Now, in, in social scientists often talk about post-traumatic stress, and we're all very familiar with it. And it's a serious deal and no joke. But more common than post-traumatic stress is a phenomenon that's identified and described by a great social psychologist named Richard Tedeschi, who talks about post-traumatic growth. Now, post-traumatic growth occurs when they're, I mean, look, you're going to get it. You're going to get trauma. You just, I mean, you don't have to go looking for suffering. It's going to find you. Right. That's just the way that life works. And there's, there can be so much that it can become an actual diagnosable health problem in, in terms of clinical depression, anxiety, mood disorders, etc. But ordinary suffering is an ordinary part of life. And only in that suffering do we have a chance at actually finding our sense of self and resilience. That's the, the sacredness of suffering. Now, that shouldn't be weird for any Christian. We have a religion based on suffering. I mean, like, the king of the universe suffered and died. I mean, physically suffered and died. And we're like, no, I, 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 I don't want to suffer. I was like, who the heck are you? You know, really? You want to be a follower of the master? Really? You don't want to go on your own via crucis? I mean, what is the meaning that we actually found from the Christian faith? It was found on the way of the cross. And, and we got to walk that way too. But it's going to be irritations and setbacks and fears and losses and unless that's Veronica wiped his brow and Simeon carried his cross and he fell the first time and he fell the second time look (laughs) you can join your sufferings to Christ or you can try to avoid them and if you try to avoid them, you've missed the opportunity to see what the full meaning of your life is. Now, I, I talk about this with my students who are not who are secular, and they have to get it too. You know, you've got to understand the meaning of your life, and you're not going to know what that meaning is until you've, until you've fallen that second time, until well, have you've you fallen seen, that third time. Have you seen that in those, oh, in yeah. those 20-somethings yeah, that totally. have all gotten a trophy, yeah. first, well, second, or last? I mean, what, what attitude did they show you when you talk about suffering? I would think yeah. you get an eyebrow or two. Well, a little bit at the very beginning, but here's the deal. I mean, if the 60s and the summer of love was if it feels good, do it. The summer of 2022 is if it feels get bad, make it stop. We're like the anti-hippies at this point. You know, <laughs> if it's their suffering, make it go away. And that's as bad. It's worse than Woodstock. It's worse. Because basically you're leaving that on the table. It's so interesting, you know, that 
meaning really has three parts to it. There's coherence, purpose, and, and significance. So coherence is things happen for a reason. Purpose means I'm going in a particular direction. Significance means this exists, that I, I matter. Now, the answer to the coherence, purpose, and significance questions are quite straightforward for Christian people. You know, it's like, what, what, is the, you know, what is the coherence? God made it. What's the purpose? What's the direction? Right. Get into heaven and take as many people with me as I can. And what's the significance? I'm alive because God wants me to be alive, right? But for other people who don't have this, they can still get this sense by really answering two questions that you only can find when you suffer. Number one is, why do I actually believe I'm alive? And the harder one is, what, for what would I be willing to die? And when you see people find the answers to these questions, it's, it's just like, it's, it's radical transformation. My own son, Carlos, you know, the... The bright 11-year-old. Yeah, bright 11-year-old, but, but... How you old know, is he now? He's 22. Okay. And, and, you know, when Carlos was in high school, meaning was hard for him. He struggled, like a lot of adolescents. You know, he struggled in school, struggled with, you know, who am I? <laughs> what am I trying to do with my life? And, and it was tricky for Carlos. It was insecure times. Well... We put together a strategic plan. All my kids, I ask them to write a business plan for their life. And the reason is because, you know, they're entrepreneurs. And I'm, I'm VC. I'm venture capital. So, you know, I deserve a business plan, I figure. <laughs> Look, I'm going to invest. And Carlos's I business like plan, it, you know, I sent it back for several revisions. And, it, and he said, I'm, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to work the land with my hands. And then I'm going to make some money. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight for my country. I'm like, all right. You do that. And he did. He became a dryland wheat farmer in Idaho for two seasons. And then he joined the Marine Corps. He's a scout sniper in the U.S. Marine Corps. He's on a forward operating base someplace in the Middle East right now. I don't know exactly where he is. Living his best life. Fully alive, right? <laughs> Why is he happy now? Because he can answer the two questions. Why was I born? Because God wanted me in this world. Why, for what am I willing to die? My country. Each one of you, my son, is willing to die. Tough stuff. <laughs> I'm afraid. Today I'm afraid. His mother's afraid. But I'm happy because my son has found meaning. And mm. each one of us deserves that. He's not going to find that through the easy stuff. He's going to find that through the threats. He's going to find that through the sacrifices. He's going to find that through the, you know, breaking his foot three times in boot camp. He's going to find that through the hard things that have happened in his life and are going to keep happening. If we don't embrace those things, we're not going to learn. If my students don't learn that, they will not understand the sanctification that actually comes from suffering and therefore the purpose that they all deserve. You feel it. Yeah. I mean, I could hear that, yeah. that emotion in your voice. You have a story of a, a friend that was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Speaking of valleys, yeah. I have so many friends that are in that space that have been diagnosed yeah. with cancer. Yesterday, I spent time with Tim Keller, who yeah. you know, has been diagnosed with uh, stage four pancreatic cancer, and he's giving it a good fight. Yeah. He's lived longer than he should have lived, and he's got some great treatments that he's doing. But speak to that, that story of your friend and yeah. what he has learned through that experience. His close friend whose memorial service I attended this last weekend, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. um, because he, he passed away during the coronavirus epidemic when legally we couldn't have memorial services. Um, and you know, a lot of people uh, had, to, had to pass on a lot of really important and significant things in their family lives. He, Many years ago, 30 years ago, he was diagnosed with a, what was presumed to be an operable cancer and given six months to live, which he basically negotiated up to 30 years. You know, he got a stay, and then he extended it, and he kept getting, but, but here's the weird thing. The, as he told me, the wolf is at the door, because the doctor said, this is going to kill you. We just don't know when. 
So every three or six months, he was going back to the doctor getting his tests. It wasn't here, it wasn't here, it wasn't here, it wasn't here. And it completely changed his life. He dedicated himself to his family. He had been a kind of an anxious person, a wonderful person, erudite, funny, cultured. He's somebody I worked with from when I was 19 till I was 25. I, I left college at 19, and I was on the road as a musician until I was 31. And he was a guy I toured with constantly. I lived with this guy. He was like my, since not going to college, he was like my fraternity brother and professor all rolled into one because he was 20 years older than me. And I learned so much from him. I love him so much. And, and I learned so much. And, and then he's diagnosed 30 years ago with his cancer. And what happened was when he was diagnosed, he just like, it changed him because he said, time is short, man. Time is short. What am I going to do? And what he did was he, he turned in, it's funny, he turned into a family man. You know, he, he dedicated himself to being fully present in the loves of his life his wife and his daughter. And every time I saw him after that, he was happier and happier and happier. It was the craziest thing. And the wolf was still at the door. And the wolf finally got in. But he died a happy man. He died a happy man. Now, I don't know how to do that because I've never had an operable cancer. And I don't know if empirically the post-traumatic stress miracle can happen to me just through the knowledge of it. But I'll be darned if I'm not going to try. Well, I, I think the obvious question is when you're faced with that kind of diagnosis, you start rethinking your life. Yeah. How does a healthy person who isn't confronting that get their head together yeah. to think about the mortality of life? Because we never think generally that it's ever going to end. We're just moving along through our 30s, our 40s, yeah. and then yeah, maybe yeah. a friend dies. But it's a philosophical problem. Look, yeah. I mean, there's this cognitive limitation that we have as human beings. And this is a lot of both philosophical and science and neuroscientific work that, that shows that we are on the one hand able to cognitively understand that we are going to die. But what we are incapable of truly captivating is the, the, the truth that we won't exist physically anymore. So your non-existence is something beyond you. And by the way, if you're a religious person, you can resolve that in a supernatural way. But it's still something that's really hard to get your mind around. It's like, I'm going to die, but I'm not going to, but I can't not exist. And, and when we don't resolve that, and people who actually have psychological or, or mental illness that, that limits their ability to actually hold that tension, what they'll do is, is frequently they will say, for example, people who uh, are suffering from, from terrible emotional maladies who commit suicide, that they actually will be thinking about what it's gonna look like to them to see the reaction on the faces of the people when they learn that they have committed suicide. What are they doing? They're living in this space of irreality and this philosophical problem. But you see that the inability to resolve this for all of us, it leads us to do the easy way out, which is, yeah, I know I'm gonna die, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm gonna act as if I never were going to die. Right. And therefore not to do the serious business of what it means to live for a limited time in the mortal coil. And that's what we all really, really need to do. So I actually make my students do a death meditation at 28 years old. And I learned this from the Theravada Buddhist monks in the southern tier of... People are of, freaking out now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, but everybody has a death fear, by the way. I mean, there's some people, they're like, I don't know, you're dying. But you have a death fear because you know who you are. And if that image of you is obliterated, that's your death fear. That freaks you out. You know, maybe it's being forgotten. Maybe it's becoming irrelevant. Um, and that's the striver's curse, right? 
you know, for me, it's losing my mind. You know, my mother had really early onset dementia. I see what that looks like. And, you know, I make my living with my mind. I'm terrified of that. That's my death fear, Mm. quite frankly, because me being Arthur Brooks being alive is my mind, right? Burn my body away, man. Yeah. But if my mind, put my brain in a jar, if it's still working, all good, you know, kind of, (laughs) it's one of these things. But I make my students, no matter what that death fear is, to confront it because only the exposure to the truth of it can bring you peace and perspective. And so the, it's called a Maranasati meditation. It's a word from Sanskrit. And, and what it is, it, it comes from these Theravada Buddhist monks who have taught me so much um, in my studies that they'll have pictures of bodies in various states of decay. And they'll, they'll st- the monks will stand in front of each of these pictures and say, that is me. And they go to the next picture and say, that is me. And it'll be a body that's just died and or a person who's just died and then and the beginnings of decay. And then the last one will be old bones. Mm. And that is me. And that is me. And each day to make it more present, to make it more real, because only then when you confront the reality of what the, the end of our physical lives is, can you be fully alive and understand this reality and act as such. Arthur, in that, in that description, I mean, many Christians are going to, panic that you're talking about what a Buddhist taught you. Yeah. But I'm sure there's Old Testament references in, in, about the bones. Of course. And, of course. You know, so like, how do you, yeah, just yeah. reconciling that. Yeah, yeah, so the, for first, sure. the first argument is, wait a minute, you shouldn't be listening to those people. Yeah, but, but you know, uh, uh, St. Augustine, um, we call him Augustine, you Protestants call him Augustine. Uh, weird difference between I call him Bob. Call him, <laughs> <laughs> call him Gus. Gus. You know, the uh, old St. Gus, Bishop of Hippo, um, he, uh, St. Augustine, he was a Platonist. Plato was a pagan. We, look, the great thing about Christianity is that we take the best from every place. Mm. Grab it, man. Run with it. It's yours. As, as long as it fits scripture. Totally, totally. Yeah. And you know, that, you know, Plato, he was pre-Christ and he had so much to say, so much for us to learn. Buddhism predates Christianity and has so much to teach us in so many ways. You don't have to become a Buddhist, but look, there was a very famous book by a, um, a monk, a Catholic monk that was written in the 1960s. It was quite popular with Thomas Merton, you know, who is right here in New York City. It was called Zen Catholicism, which like, oh, you can't do that, man. You can't do that, right? Of course you can do that. You can actually learn from all different sources. We should be learning from people who are not Christian people. We should be loving people who are not Christian people. We should be getting out of the house as far as I'm concerned. And if we're secure in our faith, everything will enrich our faith. It's not going to shake our faith. It's going to make it better and better as yeah, far as I'm that's concerned. Good. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I've got teachers all over the world. You mentioned uh, your love of music yeah. and the fact that you left school for that. Yeah. And you do uh, say in the book you learn quite a bit from Bach. Yeah. So Tell us what you learned from Bach yeah. in terms of his faith. I didn't know him personally. Okay, but, good. Um, yeah, Johann Sebastian Bach, 18, uh, 1685 to 1750. Incredibly productive. The greatest master of the high Baroque. Um, also had 20 children, which is productive. <laughs> and um, By any measure. I'm telling you. And he was a, he was a good, you know, good Lutheran. And you know, he, was, he loved his family in a very big way. So I was a classical musician for this entire time. Um, I didn't actually... The reason I left college is complicated. You know, dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs. And, uh, and this, this, this time that I spent on the road was, that's really all I wanted to do because as a kid, all I wanted to be was a, was a classical musician. That was my, my big dream. That was, the, that was success in life. And having to leave that was a real source of heartbreak, quite frankly, because I just, my career didn't have promise by my late 20s. You know, I kind of peaked in my early 20s and that, therein lies another tale. But when I was in, 
when I was a classical musician, my favorite composer was Johann Sebastian Bach. You know, this, I mean, everybody loves Bach now, but Bach had a very interesting life, actually. Bach was fundamentally not about music. Fundamentally, he was about his Christian faith. Hmm. You know, his, this dog-eared family Bible with all of his notes in the margins, you know, that he was writing to himself. He finished every score in Latin, you know, to the glory of God. You know, he was asked near the end of his life, why do you write music? Why do you write music? And his answer was not, uh, you know, I got a lot of mouths to feed. His answer was, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. And when I read that for the first time, when I was a kid, when I was in my late 20s, I asked myself, can I say that? Can I say that or not? And, and you know, I actually left music and became a social scientist because I wanted to be able to say that. The greatest composer in the world pushed me out of music and made me into an economist. It's so absurd because I wanted a better answer to the question of the why of my life, and to lift people up and bring them together more effectively. And, and you know, it's weird. I, I didn't know, but I feel like it's better now than anything I've ever been able to do, because I can talk to people in a more comprehensive way about the things that they really care about. Thanks to, thanks to Johann Sebastian Bach, I'm now a happiness specialist. Yeah, right, there you go. Give him credit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're winding down here, yeah. so I wanted to give people some practical tools yeah. on how to assess their joy, their happiness. Right. Um, you mentioned uh, there are seven words that people need to be mindful of. What are those seven words? So the world gives you formula, and the formula is really simple, but it's a counterfeit formula. The world gives you a formula for happiness. That's love things, use people, and worship yourself. That's what the world tells you to do, right? Things are going to bring you the satisfaction that you really want. People are there for your advancement and your pleasure, right? And, and, and guess who's at the center of it all? You. That's what the world tells you. The good news is that there's actually a formula to follow that, that looks a lot like the counterfeit formula. So much so, as a matter of fact, that it's easy to let it slip through. Just change the nouns and verbs around a little bit, which is to use things, love people, and worship God. That's it. You know, and when I say use things, take joy in the abundance of the world. You know, it's like, oh, I feel so guilty. I use that, and I consume this, and, you know, capitalism this, and consumerism that. No, no, no. Love the experience in communion with the people that you love of the beautiful things that are around us because this is the bounty that we're supposed to enjoy. But don't love the things. Remember, St. Paul doesn't say to Timothy that money is the root of all evil. He says that the love of money is the root of all evil. That's the, the operative idea there. And that leads to the next thing, which is truly that people are made for love. People are made for love. And that is one of the great secrets to happiness. And that all revolves now around the creator of all this bounty, the creator of all the people that we're supposed to love. And that's the only entity worthy of true worship, which is to worship God. In the more formal sense, to worship the divine. <laughs> and that's how we look. Now, easier said than done, right? You know, I'm going to accidentally go love a thing today, for sure, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably treat somebody with kind of an objectification. I don't want that. I'm I'm going to offer it up and, and you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to confess that later today, I'm sure, at the end of the day, when I say my examination of conscience. It's an easy thing to fall into, but if I can at least remember the formula and commit myself to that formula, um, then at least I, I have a chance of being on the right track. Arthur, right at the end, the, uh, you know, I'm 61. Yeah. I was born in 61. Look at that head of hair. I could be oh, president, yeah. president what, of the United States happened? with that hair. You know? <laughs> but the, uh, so we're close in age. Yeah. 
And you start thinking about that transition about now. Right. You maybe should have thought about it at 24 when you had a professor ask you to do the things that you ask your students to That's do. Right. But if a person hasn't given this much thought, and they've been, you know, maybe modestly successful, they've got the toys, they've got a good family. It just hasn't, they, they're burning at the average rate. Right. So there's nothing that has caused them to think differently about their life. But now they're thinking of retirement. Have I missed anything? Right. Just describe that, that assessment and where they should go from there, the middle-of-the-road person. So one of the things that I talk an awful lot about in, about in the book is, is actually how to assess where you are. And everybody can be happier. You know, it's not a question of becoming happy. Look, I fall on the low end of the scale of average happiness across the population. That's, I've met some grumpy old men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, I know everybody who does work in the science of happiness. And there's a reason they study it. You know, it's not, it's, it's my wife is like, why do you study that thing? It's because she's like a 9.8 out of 10 on the happiness scale. My wife's from Barcelona, you know, it's, they're happy. And, and I'm not, you know, and so that's why I do this. It's not research, it's me-search, right? Wow. And, but the whole point is not to, I'm not going to attain the Shangri-La of ultimate happiness. It's actually to get happier. Real happiness comes in, you arrive in one place <laughs> and not here, <laughs> right? So, but you can get happier and so doing you can bring happiness to other people. And so what I talk about with a lot of other people is they're saying life is pretty good. Life is pretty good. It can be better. It actually can be better. And you can lift up other people as it gets better for you. And so I talk about different ways to, you know, look at the probably where the missing pieces are. A lot of people our age, Jim, yeah, they're, they have a good family life. It's going okay. Could be better. You know, they're pretty comfortable because, you know, thank God we live in the United States mm -hmm. where, you know, you, we're, we're pretty prosperous people and hunger is not a widespread problem and there's no knock in the night and there's no jackbooted thug. God bless this country. Um, we often forget that because we're ungrateful wretches. Right. You know, it's like, oh, the guy in the next house who voted for the Democrats, he's the real enemy. It's, it's so absurd, you know, yeah. the, you know, the things that we, that we say and think. But, you know, we, but people are living pretty well, but they'll be missing a little chip. They'll be missing mm -hmm. a little piece. You know, there's something I can, I can, I can kind of do an assessment. And almost always it'll fall into, especially for men who are our age, they're probably missing on the friendship dimension. Mm -hmm. They're probably not going as deep as they could on the faith dimension. When you think about it, it's like, so I talk to a lot of kind of casual Christians. And I talk about it. It's like, really? Do you want to leave what you profess to be the single most important thing in the history of the universe and say, yeah, it's the kind of thing I do for 45 minutes on Sunday. That's, think about it, right? Let's think a little bit more deeply. And so there's these protocols that I can take people through in the relationships that, that they have with the people around them, the love relationships they could cultivate, bring a little bit more depth to, to have a better perspective on what their future might bring, the satisfaction that they actually get with the, the years ahead of them and for the depth that they could get by, by thinking very seriously about their spiritual walk to get the peace and perspective that I can bring, we can all do better. We can actually all get happier. I love it. And uh, what a great resource you've created here. And thanks for the time. And let's go to some questions. Yeah. I'm sure some people have a few questions, I hope. Yeah. Anybody? Um, you mentioned that you are like 96% on the extrovert scale. Yeah. You know, dog world and cat world and stuff. I'm just curious in your research, do extroverts and introverts experience happiness differently? Or you know, if happiness is love and love is with other people and right. introverts that might take the energy versus extroverts, it gives other. How does that play out between the two different types of personality? Yeah. That's a good question. So the question is, you know, how do extroverts and introverts experience love? 
Um, and the answer is it has to do with the, the kinds of relationships and the depth and number of relationships that they have. So what you find is that introverts they tend to have fewer and deeper relationships. Extroverts tend to have more and shallower relationships. The, the big problem for introverts is that they can become very lonely if they, don't have a, if they don't have this one or two. And the big problem for extroverts is that they're all on, they're skipping across the, <laughs> they're looking for fresh meat in the human market all the time. You know, it's like <laughs> new audience, awesome. You know, everybody's my friend. And that means nobody's your friend. And the result is they don't dig in enough to actually get that. Mm. But, you know, an extrovert who's doing it right will have, a hundred acquaintances and 20 friends and, and, you know, two or three intimates of which one is the spouse, you know, because the, the ideal love is companionate love. Ideal romantic love is companionate love is what we find. Is that what we talk about in, in the literature? And then and the introverts, they, they have to make sure that they're not self-isolating, which is the natural tendency of introverts, so that they can get those, those deep two or three mm. real relationships that they have. And, the, and then, then love is love. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. In your research, have you come across what age group or age band figures out the time value of time? Tell me more. What do you mean? Well, we're all chasing time in some form. We talk about experience. Or yeah. Time, some people need a, an event. Yeah. Know, maybe terminal cancer diagnosis. But you don't need to go through some of these things to trigger that. Right. But at some point, people will realize there is a time, like a finite timeline here. Right. So as you go through your research, is there a, people in their 40s or 50s or yeah. 60s? Mm -hmm. They're like... Aha. Ah, yeah. Not that we're already going to die, but it's like yeah. we need to change or shift our focus on how we spend our time. Yeah, yeah. And we, actually, that's a very good question. And there's a, sort of emerging research on when people actually start to see that they accommodate themselves to the fact that there is an end to the timeline in the mortal coil. <laughs> it tends to be for most people in their mid-50s is when they're actually saying, ah, Ah, and what do they do? Interesting, you know, those that are that are that are making that have decision making that's actually pretty, pretty coherent. One of the things that they do is they stop investing in things for long term benefits where the investment is doing something they don't like. So they they won't take a big leadership position that wouldn't be any fun for a payoff to the career that's ten years hence. When you're 55, you're just less likely to do that. And so you'll see people who are 55 years old, and a lot of people, for example. Um, are very reluctant CEOs. They want to be CEO, but they don't want to do the CEO job. And the reason is because, Jim, and I, you know, if you have 700 bosses. You could tell Sean, your son, actually, I work for 700 people. They're called the employees of Focus on the Family, right? right? Yeah. I mean, because you're a servant leader, no joke. And, and most of, of, of top leadership, you know, management is, is, is taking care of human resource problems. It's the human problem. The problem with management is humans. Right is, is what it comes down to. And so it, for some people, that's really fun. For most people, it actually isn't. And it's really quite an onerous thing. And so you get to into your mid-50s, your late 50s, and a lot of people who are strivers in particular, big jobs will come their way and they'll say, uh-uh. That for the first time in their life, they'll, they'll shock themselves by actually saying no because they don't want that 15-year payoff for you know, tr you know, suffering because they know what that suffering actually is. And that's when it tends to manifest. You At 35, you'd take it all day long. Right, so you start reassessing yeah. and doing yeah. things almost yeah. naturally. I find that you're I'm doing that myself. Students. I'm yeah. finding I'm doing that myself. You know, I you know, have all kinds of opportunities to do all to, to run stuff because I've been a CEO. But uh-uh, I'm going to write, speak, and teach for the rest of my life. That I'm in the zone. I'm in the crystallized intelligence zone, which means you're using your wisdom as opposed to your you know, your innovative capacity. I'm in the instructor part of my life, and I really, really like it. And... 
you know, being the president of a university or president of a company wouldn't really wouldn't suit me right now. Mm. Um, and when I have those opportunities, I, at least I have the presence of mind. It's funny. I've seen this in the research and then, then I weirdly experience it. You know, ordinarily my wife would be the one who has to say, are you kidding me? Are you going to do that? <laughs> Spouses are good. <laughs> yeah. At that. Which by the way, when you talk about how leaders, they need somebody, you had your son, Sean, it's just, I'm married to a Spaniard and she reminds me of, you know, all of my limitations daily. And this is very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you take it that way. Yeah. yeah I can yeah. learn from you. No, she's a, no, she's a, and she takes me to mass every morning too. You know, that's good. Yeah. Well, listen, we're out of time for questions and Arthur, thank you so much for being with us. This is yeah. great content. I, I can't imagine somebody in their third 40s, 40s and 50s that doesn't need this resource. Yeah. So thanks for talking about well, it. Well, thank you. And you know, one of the things that the, the things that we've come back to again and again, and again, that the social science tells us again and again and again, is that there really is no substitute for family life in the, in the happiness equation. Yeah. You truly are a happiness organization. Yeah. Um, and that's incredibly important for the people who are watching and listening, keep supporting focus on the family. That's a good thing for the people who are directly involved. It's also a good thing for our country. It's a good thing for our world. It's a, it's an apostolic endeavor just to listen and support and talk right. about these ideas. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I found that conversation with Arthur Brooks uh, so engaging and I hope you did too. I love what he called the happiness portfolio, faith, family, friendship, and work that serves others. That's good stuff. And, you know, I'm mindful of people who are struggling to be happy and content. I think of Sister Andre Randon, the oldest person in the world who passed away at age 118, not that long ago. And I'm sure good genetics played a part in her longevity, but so did her approach to life. Sister Andre lived with deep purpose, specifically in three ways that all of us can follow. She believed in serving others, living with a grateful heart, and holding on to your faith. Those are ideas that reinforce what Arthur was saying. The smallest blessings can give life its greatest richness and meaning. And I want to encourage you to stop and think about that today. How are you living? What are you chasing? Are you going after more money, fame, an early retirement, a life of ease? What I would suggest is think about who's around you at your deathbed. Let's say you have a a month or two and you've got time to have people say what they think and feel about you. It's going to be your spouse, your kids, uh, maybe your grandkids or great-grandkids. That's what matters most. That's what's on a headstone. He was a great father and a great husband, not he was the number one salesman we ever had. And it's important to develop those relationships and connect with the most important people in your life. The Bible says in 1 Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Man, is that a true statement or what? So again, concentrate on those relationships that mean the most to you. And get a copy of Arthur's book, From Strength to Strength. And if uh, you've enjoyed this conversation, support the Refocus podcast. And with the gift of any amount, I'll send you a copy of Arthur's book as our way of saying thank you for supporting the ministry. The link is in the episode notes. All right, for the inbox segment today, I'm going to use a question that came from the audience when I spoke to Arthur Brooks. It relates to our witness to the world as Christians. And as a professor from Harvard, I'm going to let Arthur give the answer. In your, in your walkings in, uh, as a professor and your data, how frustrating or how hard is it that, clearly with the Christian background and the knowledge, when you talk about uh, 
you know, the type A personalities of people rushing through life. You can just read in the Bible, it talks about, you know, come to me all you're weary for my yoke is, you know, my, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. You can just read that if you're a Christian and sort of just fall into all the data that you're talking about. Yeah. But do you get that opportunity to just share that with the people that you come across in a secular walk of life? I, I do, but it's a tricky thing because missionary work in the secular world isn't as straightforward as going ding dong. Have you seen the, have you experienced the, the cross of Jesus Christ? It's not like that because that's not how mission work really works under the circumstances. It would be inappropriate in my job, by the way. I mean, it would be, it would be totally off-putting and, and, and inappropriate to what I'm supposed to do and I would never do it. The way that we can do that, and you know, you're a Wall Street guy and it's the same kind of deal. You know, it's the best way for people to you know, say, I don't want to eat lunch with him anymore. But you become excellent and magnetic in your own life. You make sure that you're impeccable morally, that your relationships are right, that your relationships with your friends and with your work and with your clients and with your family, that they're right. And, and you know, primates are prone to mimicry. <laughs> and humans are the highest order primate. We want what other people can actually exhibit. So we have to ask ourselves, look, do you want to draw people to the light? Then, then live in the light. Yeah, and that's what we all get to offer. What a privilege it is to work in a secular institution that is of this level of excellence. And then for me to actually hold myself up to the highest possible standard. Why? Because it's fun and because I believe in the science and because we can do a lot of good whether or not people are talking about the religion or not. And also people are going to come to me and, or Google me or, or listen to my interview on, with Jim Daly and focus on the family and say, ah, oh, you know, that's a thing behind what Brooks is all about. But, but woe be unto us. Better that a millstone be around our neck and we cast into the deepest lake if we're not living up to it. So the stakes are really, really high, too, for this apostolic work. Wow. I mean, that is good advice from Arthur Brooks. Now, if you have a question for me for the inbox segment, please connect through the website, uh, refocuswithjimdaily.com. Click the button on the side of the show page to leave us a voicemail. And if I use your question on the podcast, I'll send you a copy of my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. Thanks again for joining me on Refocus with Jim Daly. And remember to listen, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And then join me for the next episode featuring Joe Dallas. He shares a compelling testimony of how God changed his life and how he left homosexuality as he reminds us to love others with the love of Christ. I think that we need to get back to the basics of realizing the Word of God is still living and powerful. If we will preach it faithfully, we preach evangelism to the unsaved. They need to be born again. If somebody's transgender or homosexual or whatever they are, if they have not been born again, that's secondary. That's coming up Monday, May 22nd on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like Him, talk like Him, walk like Him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.